Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Patrick Ishmael, David Stokes, and Elias Chapellis from Show Me Institute. Patrick, earlier this month, you wrote a blog post criticizing some language in some University of Missouri system job listings, and uh, this week there was some breaking news on that, so kind of catch us up to speed, and what are the latest developments? Yeah, so about four or five weeks ago, we were talking about uh, the sorts of content that was showing up in job listings from places like the University of Central Missouri or Missouri State. And what was showing up was a lot of DEI content, diversity, equity, inclusion content, arguably uh, like critical race theory kind of content. I mean, if you look at a listing for a math professor at Mizzou, uh, one of the favorite applicants, according to this application, was one, uh, a math professor that can employ justice-oriented frameworks, that is, anti-racist, abolitionist, decolonial, indigenous math to their work. Uh, and, and that, I think, is kind of a fascinating uh, prerequisite. Now, you can call that a loyalty oath. Uh, the, the university cer- certainly objected to the idea of that being a loyalty oath, which is to say that, uh, you know, you have to attest or promise to support uh, kind of these woke uh, uh, priorities as a condition of being able to get a job at the university. Uh, And we ended up getting a response from the president of the University of Missouri system saying that, you know, we don't have loyalty oaths in our our job applications. And of course, you know, a few weeks go by and we found out uh, just at the end of last week that the University of Missouri system itself was going to walk back uh, that language and that they're gonna implement basically a new quote values language that is I think better uh, doesn't focus on this kind of divisive racial language that uh, the university, at least the Missouri the University of Missouri system, had been using over the last couple of years. I, I think it is progress. I, I don't think that having oaths in hiring is good either for students. I mean, if you're trying to decolonize math, does that mean that students at the, in the University of Missouri system are getting a better math professor or just an ideologically biased math professor. Um, it, it is good to see the University of Missouri system move in the right direction, but it's, of course, only one part of the university system in the state. There are other universities that are sit outside the University of Missouri system, Missouri State, for instance, uh, which I think still has a lot of this language in their job listings. Uh, I, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done to make sure that there is no ideological test to get a a job as a professor of math uh, in in uh, in the state of Missouri. So um, there already has been some movement in the legislature to uh, change the law uh, on what these universities can actually do or demand from applicants. Uh, some movement in the House, some movement in the Senate. We'll see exactly what ends up coming out of it. But I think that between our our writing and some other writing and uh, some pressure fr- from the legislature, I think the University of Missouri felt the heat. And I think it might be the first uh, university system in the state to change its practices, uh, but uh, hopefully it won't be the last. Sure. So one point of clarification and then a follow up question. So this was language in job listings that if you wanted to apply, apply to be, you mentioned a professor or other positions at the university, you would have to write a statement. And some of the statements ask for um, specific uh, yeah, DEI, diversity, and now they've changed the language to just write a general value statement. Does that kind of capture it? Yeah, more or less. It's a, it's an attestation that you are going to support the university's values. And, and you know, if you're looking at someplace like the University of Central Missouri, uh, to become a librarian there, they had an application for a job 
uh, that demanded that you incorporate social justice into your work, diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. Uh, and so that language, uh, at least in the University of Missouri system, which is UMKC, UMSL, University of Missouri, Columbia, um, those schools, that language is not going to be allowed uh, in that system anymore. Uh, but uh, I think that when you look outside the system, uh, there, I haven't seen anything in the news yet that any other university has changed course on that. But again, it's an attestation or, or a statement that says, I'm going to support this list of ideological priorities. Uh, and I think that's an issue. Sure. And usually, especially in our line of work, change takes a really long time. You know, we point something out and then if reform happens, it's a, this seemed pretty quick. Do you have any thoughts on how much of it was just us and other organizations pointing it out? Or do you think maybe the momentum around possible pending legislation, universities kind of want to get ahead of the ball? What? How do you think that breaks down? I, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I think this has been an issue that was bubbling before we wrote about it. Um, certainly, I think that going public with our view on it had a, a an impact. And certainly legislation, which was filed about the same time that we posted our blog, I think had an impact as well. I know that the sponsor of that legislation has been in discussions with not only the uh, president of the University of Missouri system, but also the president of Missouri State. And so I think that maybe part of the reason that the University of Missouri system moved when it did was because they did see this legislation coming. They were hoping to maybe head it off. Uh, and, and But my hope, though, and, and we wrote about this on the blog in a follow-up, uh, I think it is important, though, that the legislature moves forward to make sure that, you know, this uh, avenue of ideological indoctrination of faculty is foreclosed in the future. Because, again, there are other universities that can move forward with this kind of language currently. They, they, they haven't barred it quite yet. And, of course, the University of Missouri system could, of course, revert back to this language at some point in the future. Having a statutory like statement, a line in the sand about exactly what the expectations are for taxpayer money I think is really important. And, and there are a lot of different avenues that are being pursued right now in the legislature right now, both in the House and in the Senate, both statutorily and through the budget uh, that would basically say you, you have to keep this stuff out of hiring. You have to keep even maybe perhaps more so uh, keeping a lot of this divisive content out of even training materials for new hires. And I think that's an important discussion to have. And uh, there is a pretty good chance, it seems like, given the number of different avenues that are open opening up for this subject uh, to get that done by May. But of course, like anything in the legislature, uh, we can get real excited and real disappointed real fast. So let, I got my fingers crossed. Sure. Speaking of uh, excitement and disappointment, Elias, the budget process has started something that you track very closely. We spoke a little bit about it last week, but uh, what's happened so far? Sure. So yesterday, the House gave their initial approval of the budget. It was eight plus hours of offering amendments but what it looks like uh, the the budget that was passed is on track to be the most expensive in state history we're looking at a little less than what the governor recommended which was about 50 billion dollars the house is looking at somewhere in the 47 billion dollar range and so to put that in context missouri's budget was only about 27 billion in 2019 so we're we're looking at almost doubling in four years um, a lot of that is federal funding uh, from the um, from the American Rescue Plan. There's a lot of money there that the state needs to spend by 2024. Uh, but still, this is not just a federal phenomenon. There, there is roughly 20% increase in general revenues. So that is, you know, state 
income taxes, sales taxes. There's a lot more money going out, and this is across a lot of state departments. You're looking at uh, DESE, so elementary and secondary education. Their budget is up basically 70% in four years, so a ton more money there. MoDOT, over double in the last four years. And the state's Medicaid program is uh, up over 40%. You're looking at enrollment in the state's Medicaid program up over 70%. So everything is growing in Jefferson City. And uh, while the House did sort of take a hatchet to the governor's ideas, um, he the governor proposed the idea of expanding I-70, some other things. They did trim down his $50 billion budget. But $47 billion is still not too uh, reassuring to me. And what happens if they don't spend it by 2024? Well, technically, they have to obligate the funds by 2024, and they have until 2026 to spend them. But uh, you're still looking at the situation where the state is getting the ball rolling on a ton of projects and hoping that they can spend the money in time. I mean, last year, the legislature approved roughly 40 some billion dollars worth of uh, spending in the budget and the government was only able to spend in the 20 20 billion dollar range again which in some ways sounds good but what it's also showing is that it's actually there's so much money the state is having a hard time spending it and the state is on track to spend more this year and the risk with spending all this money is that you're going to obligate future years of these um, projects uh, that you know, once the federal money runs out, it's going to be hard to scale back. And then you have just a much larger uh, government and, you know, across all these big programs, DESE, MoDOT, Medicaid, all of them are growing. And uh, once this money runs out, we might just be left with a, a government that's bigger than our state tax base can afford. And it, it can never be repeated enough to remind everyone how so much of this ARPA funds when it was passed in 2021 it was sold to save our economy from the, the recession, the COVID depression, whatever you want to call it. It was pitched to how will we we're save it. It was even in the name, the American Rescue Plan. So here we are, 2023, still budgeting and spending this money. It clearly wasn't needed to save the economy. And I'm well aware that some of it has indeed already been spent. But it's just the next time uh, politicians pitch funding at a, and on an emergency basis to rescue the economy, just uh, don't don't believe it for a second. And Elias, there's already been some controversy, I guess, around the, the MoDOT funding, right, and how it can be allocated and some oversight on those funds? Well, there, with every amount of federal funding that comes in, you know, there are strings attached in how states can spend them. But the MoDOT money is even a, a stranger case because with MoDOT, uh, essentially, the state commission that runs, uh, that essentially decides how to spend the money for MoDOT, has essentially said, well, okay, now we have more money from the federal government, from the state's higher gas tax. They want to pay their uh, employees more, which, you know, in theory, that sounds okay, but the legislature is normally behind all this stuff. And so there's now a fight between the legislature and MoDOT of how MoDOT can spend the money. Um, I mean, you basically, there's so much money that now all the departments are sort of fighting over how to spend it, um, whether it's even a good idea to accept these federal funds because the difficulty with um, complying with all the strings, the auditing requirements. I mean, there's going to be years and years of studying how this uh, money was spent, where things went wrong, because there's a real potential for waste here. And I 
despite all the work that the legislature appears to be doing on the issue, I'm not confident that this money is going to good use. And right now we don't have any reason to believe that there there's that oversight being put in along the way, right? Do you think it's going to be in a few years, it's going to be half, it's going to be an oversight infrastructure that's put in place completely retroactively. It's all going to be looking back. There's not a system in the state right now that is keeping track of all this money being spent in real time. And I mean, we've tried, we did a project on one of the, um, stimulus packages and spend, and it was tough it was really hard to find out how it was being spent and it just doesn't seem like there's any reason to believe that that process has been improved for this large sum of money i i certainly don't see it uh myself i mean i think there is a lot of money that is going towards different uh it upgrades it's something we've talked about a lot in the past the state's it systems are very far behind and so one of the first steps is improving the quality of data, making it easier to see where this money is being spent, how the programs that uh, receive this money are performing. But ultimately, the legislature seems, well, and the governor seem way more interested in getting the money out the door, spending the money now, figuring out how it was spent later. And frankly, that's too late for taxpayers to figure out what happened there. And I, I'm really worried that some of these projects, um, programs, and whatnot are going to be ultimately found to be a major waste of state tax dollars. And we're not going to be move for the amount of money, we're not going to move forward as much as uh, you would think we should be able to with the crazy amount of money that's being spent. And so kind of the next chapter of this story, and I know we're looking forward here, maybe a year, maybe two years, we're going to start hearing about cliffs, right? Big cuts. Oh, yeah. The well, so there's the risk of a recession, but there's also this big risk of the federal money you know, running out. So as I mentioned, the budget is so much higher right now. Well, part of that is because the state's getting almost three times the federal dollars that they were receiving four years ago. And so if the legislature has obligated all this money to these programs and the money starts drying up, you know, looking at these different programs, how you kind of scale these things back. You know, the state is now propping up state uh, teacher salaries across the board. Um, Medicaid enrollment is up over 70%. You're going to start seeing you know, enrollment drop there hopefully pretty soon. But with that enrollment dropping, the state's share of uh, Medicaid costs is going to be going up. Uh, you know, Are we sure that all these MoDOT projects are going to be completed you know, on time and in, you know, on budget, stuff like that? And you're, I mean, that's actually across all state... Um, government. And so there's a real concern that uh, scaling the government back to the size of what our state tax base can support is going to be very, very difficult. And you're going to be hearing, you're going to be hearing a lot of uh, concern about the uh, cuts that will be, will definitely be coming. Patrick, you've done a couple projects on uh, budget transparency, and you worked on the, the stimulus paper that I was talking about. What, uh, what concerns do you have at this point in the process with all this uh, money sloshing around? I, I think it's the same concerns that Elias has. And I think that it, it reemphasizes the fact that transparency shouldn't be an unusual thing. You know, having special transparency measures in place for stimulus funds uh, should be almost a non-issue because all spending, whether it's at the local level or at the state level, should be available readily uh, in a format that's easy to digest, that's easy to export, that's easy to investigate. And so whether you're talking about the CARES Act or whether you're talking about ARPA or whether you're talking about just 
the normal spending of state governance or local governance. There, there really needs to be a, a push to make sure that the IT system of the state is aligned towards transparency and that the outputs that are available through that system are available to the public readily. You can't have great data and then have obfuscation or obstruction from the folks who control it. And so having good data and great transparency, I think, is enormously important, not only in uh, historic times, unusual times where a lot of money is coming in that is unexpected or wasn't expected, but also you need to have this transparency all the time. And I think that the public has a right to demand that, expect that, and hopefully we'll see that in the future, not only in spending by state government, but by local government. Uh, you know, Of course, on the school level, transparency in documentation, but transparency is enormously important at all times, not just unusual times. I was going to add just a quick little anecdote from yesterday that I thought kind of at, you know emphasizes this point. There was a discussion on the House floor. They were talking about this budget you know, for over eight hours before they passed it. But there was uh, some new data collection that started. I think it was in DESE. Um, and it started over a year ago or so. And uh, this was new data for them to collect. And the idea was that it would go into some place so that legislators, the public, could look at it. Well, apparently, according to DESE, they don't have anyone that whose job is to actually look at this data and um, you know make it easily um, understandable to the public. So, with this new money, the the department started collecting data. It's now in a unreadable format in a database in Desi. No one can use it, but um, you know that that is one of the major struggles that we deal with on this. Uh, you know, on this money here is that we're trying to improve the data. There was that move, but then we have to go the extra step of making it so that people can actually hold their government accountable for what for what's going on. Finally, before we move on, uh, April first, uh, Medicaid eligibility those those checks begin right. So the the checks on eligibility, so that makes it even a little bit more of a moving target when you're talking about funding that program. It's very difficult because a lot of your budget, a lot of your budgeting for DESE and Medicaid are based around the amount of uh, people. So the amount of kids that are going to be in school, the amount of people that are going to be on the Medicaid program. And there's already articles written, you know, uh, warnings put out there that with the state looking at Medicaid eligibility again, you're looking at probably 200 plus thousand people um, being removed from the Medicaid rolls here pretty soon. And that's not to say people that, you know, rely on this healthcare are going to be, you know, um, Without it, this is really something where people that no longer qualify, no longer need the Medicaid um, program, are still on the rolls because of how the federal uh, government's public health emergency has been um, interpreted. And so Missouri is going to be right-sizing the rolls, which in theory should be leading to uh, cost savings there for the state. But at the same time, the federal government is going to start winding down their additional Medicaid funding. And so it's a big undertaking for the Department of Social Services, but um, it's something I'm looking forward to. And there will certainly be a lot of news coverage of the process as it goes on. All right. And David, next week there's an election and you will not stop talking about marijuana around the office. So will you I haven't really stopped for years. Right. But will you connect? I have a reason. Connect those two dots for me, if you would. Well, cities and counties around the state are voting on marijuana taxes for the new, newly legal recreational marijuana. 
And this is the first election where, since it was passed into law by the voters and took effect earlier this year, now cities and counties can impose a, a local sales tax specifically on marijuana sales. This is above just the general sales tax that all products pay. It's 3%. That's set by law, so a county can't choose to make it 4% or a city can't choose 2%, just 3%. And it's being hundreds of cities and counties, including St. Louis City, St. Louis County, Jackson County, and Kansas City, many, many, many other cities and towns and counties around the state. So that's the main thing people are voting on. And I think it's going to be interesting. We had an op-ed on it in the Post-Dispatch, and we had letters to the editor uh, published around around other parts of Missouri. So everybody can check those out via the Google machine. And I, I think there's strong arguments for it. I mean, marijuana is, like cigarettes and alcohol, it's a product that imposes certain legalized marijuana is going to impose certain costs on society and to have users of it pay a, a little extra tax in order to help address that I think is a appropriate what's interesting to me is that it's an open question right now whether if counties pass the tax whether the county tax is going to be countywide and thereby on top of any municipal tax equaling a six percent local tax or if it's just going to be collected only in the unincorporated areas of the county. Usually county taxes are done countywide, county sales taxes, but the people who wrote and, and got this constitutional amendment done, they intended it to be only in the unincorporated areas of, of the county, so it would be at most a 3% local tax. Not surprisingly, when you try to do legislative minutia via constitutional amendment, which is a terrible idea and was in and of itself a reason to vote against this, uh, they didn't do a very good job of writing that. So counties are suing to claim that it should be countywide and on top of municipal taxes, meaning a 6% tax if you live in some place like in University City in St. Louis County, if where I live, where if it's both passed, you get, you get a 6% tax. So it's just an interesting example of why we need initiative petition reform to stop having that little... It was perfectly appropriate for the voters of the state to decide should recreational marijuana be legal. But to then get into legislative minutia like the level of local tax, I think, is a bridge way too far. I would expect a lot of these things will pass next week. Uh, I tend to be knowledgeable about the policy, but generally wrong in my political prediction. So we'll remain, we shall remain to be seen what, what happens when the, when the voters vote. So there's going to be some number of voters that go into the booth on Tuesday and they're not going to be quite sure if they're voting for 3% or a 6% tax. Right. And yeah, people all around, all around the state. I don't know if it'll be that clear to them. It's that, that question, but it is a, it is an open question right now. And it's, I don't think in the end, most voters probably wouldn't care that much, but it is unfortunate that that's an, that answer is unknown when they step into the voting booth. Cause it's going to be, decided in court. As I read the amendment, it didn't seem written clearly enough for the highly unusual act of county sales taxes only being in the unincorporated area. So I would, I believe that the counties will win and these taxes will be done countywide, meaning in many municipalities around the state, it will be a 6% tax, but in unincorporated areas of counties, it will only be 3% giving what 
What I, what I mean by that is you should open these dispensaries in unincorporated areas of the counties and always have a 3% tax advantage over your municipal your municipal competition. Or in St. Louis City, which can obviously it's not in a county, I think the uh, dispensaries will always be a little bit cheaper there. So it could be fun to see how that pl- change plays out over time. Sure. And one more item that some people across the state can be looking at that I think is interesting um, I think Springfield, I know in Kansas City, there's a vote on a hotel tax. However, the tax is already affected on hotels. This would be on short-term rentals. These decisions in Kansas City and Springfield are, are to expand the hotel tax to include short-term rentals, primarily Airbnb and VRBO. Uh, I think it's a good, I would, if I lived in those towns, I'd be voting in favor of this. I'm generally in favor of broadening the tax base. I don't know why a VRBO rental should have a tax advantage over a hotel rental. I think leveling the playing field is is good. So, I again, I would expect that to pass. But I'm not here for the political predictions. I think it's generally good policy to to expand the tax base and level the playing field here. And if I was writing the bill, I'd have probably given a a short term exemption, meaning if you only rent your VRBO or your your house out on these systems for less than say two weeks a year i'd probably give an exemption on any taxes for that but uh i didn't write the bill and i think most people who do that rent their homes out quite frequently they're in competition with the hotel motel industry and i think the the tax level should be should be equal and then we have use taxes there's a few dozen cities around the state with use taxes on the ballot including seven in st louis county and the city of st charles i I have nothing against use taxes, as we've also said in op-eds and letters to the editor around the state, but it is so frustrating to see in Maryland Heights and Chesterfield and other cities, places where voters just rejected the tax uh, last year and having city officials say, well, you didn't vote the right way, so we're going to give this back to you to reconsider. That's not how this should work. There needs to be a moratorium on uh, how, how quickly a tax can be placed back on the ballot if it fails. And Representative Ben Keithley from Chesterfield has that bill on the ballot, and I hope it, I, I think that'd be good policy. All right. Well, we'll check in next week after uh, people vote. All right. Let's wrap up with what people are keeping track of over the next week. And Patrick, we will start with you. Yep. Uh, like my colleagues at the Institute, I have been monitoring the legislature and will be doing that for the rest of the week. I'm also drafting a blog that looks at uh, ways to promote transparency, including empowering the auditor's office, which actually has a lot of leverage over local government to be more transparent about their spending records. So uh, that'll probably go out later this week. But uh, same old, same old. Uh, hopefully uh, the legislature makes us proud. And uh, if they don't, well, we'll find out here pretty soon. Elias? Well, so continuing the budget trend, the now that the House is done, it'll be shifting over to the Senate. So I'll be starting to kind of try to figure out what the Senate's view on these things are. The Senate thus far this year has passed a variety of bills that have pretty expensive price tags. And so with the House passing a tax cut bill uh, last week and the budget, uh, we're going to get to see, you know, does the Senate think, you know, lowering taxes for all Missourians is a good idea? Do they think, you know, some of their paying for some of their, um, you know, kind of expensive bills are a good idea? Or, you know, how do they agree on the various different ideas the governor put forth, expanding I-70, uh, universal pre-K, stuff like that. And so there's there's a lot of movement to be had there. Um, typically, the Senate spends more money than the House, 
And so it's going to be something I'm going to be watching very closely. And David. Terum Ripum Vinci, Landbanks must be defeated. The terrible, atrocious, awful Landbank bill has moved on to the Senate. Uh, hopefully the Senate will stop it. The last thing Missouri needs, the last thing Missouri needs is land banks in every city and county in the state of Missouri. On top of that, if you're, if you know grad students or college students, we have a summer intern program opening. Go to showmeinstitute.org, uh, the jobs page there for information on, on our summer intern program. And also on April 19th, at St. Louis University, Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal is coming to give a talk on his recent biography of Thomas Sowell. It's open to the public, free to attend. Please sign up and register at showmeinstitute.org. And how much of the interview process for potential interns is talking about land banks? About three quarters of it, actually. It's really, it's really the predominant characteristic of the, uh, if you're a pro land bank, you should probably wait till next summer to apply for this internship. Uh, but, but seriously, folks, we, uh, we've got a lot of, it's a paid internship. We get a lot of economics and political science students who, uh, have applied for it in years past. And if you're interested in it, please send us an application. All right. And thank you for listening. Plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Elias, Patrick, David, thank you very much. Thank you.